Today, I'm sitting here with Dr. Kelly Reynolds and Dr. Jonathan Sexton, both of the College of Public Health. Dr. Reynolds also serves as the director and creator of the Environment, Exposure Science, and Risk Assessment Center, also known as ESRAC. And Dr. Sexton has worked as a researcher in environmental science, specializing in the occurrence and control of environmental pathogens for over 10 years, and he's also involved in ESRAC. Just for uh, our audience, just a little bit of background. What is ESRAC and why did you see the need to create this department, this whole center? I know it's something that you really created from the ground up. Well, we created ESRAC really because we saw a need at the university and within our program of environmental health sciences to really connect the research we were doing in academia with industry partners. So not just industry, but you know, industry stakeholders, community stakeholders, a variety of groups that are concerned about the same environmental issues, but we don't necessarily interact. So ESRAC is the Environment, Exposure Science, and Risk Assessment Center, and it really created a, a home base for all of us to come together, these different stakeholders, and talk about the same issues from different perspectives. Yeah, I think one of the most important parts um, in academia is creating those avenues for collaboration. That's exactly what the center does. I think it was also there to force me to graduate. So. <laughs> <laughs> was that part of your dissertation work or anything? No, it was just right, at, right when it started, that's right when I graduated. What kind of gaps um, does ESRAC fill? Yeah, so ESRAC really fulfills that collaborative piece where, you know, it's just a way to bring people together. So one of our projects, for example, that we work on is focused around healthcare-acquired infections. Okay. And so as researchers, we're looking at how do pathogens or germs get transmitted in the healthcare environment? And then the infection preventionists who are the healthcare workers or the nurses or physicians working in hospital facilities or long-term care facilities, they want to make sure they're following protocols and guidelines that are most protective for their patients. And then you have the patients as, as a whole other group of stakeholders who are concerned about their own safety or safety of loved ones that might be in these facilities. So it's only by coming together and really understanding each other's perspectives that we can really develop innovative solutions for preventing infections yeah. in these environments. Yeah. And healthcare acquired infections, that's like a, there's so many different aspects that go into preventing that from everything from um, antibiotic prescriptions to um, cleanliness practices. I know once, um, I don't know if you remember, but you gave um, a guest lecture in one of my classes about how to properly clean everything in your house. And that's (laughs) like haunted me since then (laughs) and really um, informed my decisions when I was buying a new couch. So thank you very much. That was one of the ones that you stressed was the couch cleanliness and how to best clean that. So yeah, I think a lot of the research that comes out of the center is just best practices on how to keep everything clean and ice, ice machines and disinfecting practices. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of the exposure piece. And you brought up, you know, I brought up healthcare environments. You brought up household environments. We know that households are the primary place where you will come into contact with an infectious agent. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the central site of transfer, either from water quality issues or food safety issues, food safety practices, or just how we share germs amongst family members where you have, you know, low awareness in your home. You don't mm-hmm. think of your home as being a dangerous area. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying it's dangerous, but it is a place where we trade a lot of germs. So there's a lot we can do that are simple practices to really prevent those illnesses. Yeah. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what some of those practices are for our audience that are listening and might be curious? So just a lot of the practices are just making sure you disinfect correctly. Like I always in all my classes when I talk about disinfecting, I have them ask them, I'm like, how do you disinfect this table? And they're always like, oh, just spray it and wipe it. And I'm like, that's sanitizing. 
So there is a difference between that. So you need to make sure you read the labels and you properly use all those disinfectants. And a lot of them are made for heart services. So you have to uh, throw in some extra precautions, like if you're um, disinfecting like a wall or something like that to make sure it stays wet for the proper amount of time. And, and especially like if, I know some people like to make bleach solutions, but bleach can be degraded by sunlight. So you need to make sure that it's a fresh solution or it's kept out of the sunlight. Yeah. So. And a lot of the work that both of you do is taking these research findings and then reframing them so it is accessible to the general public. So I know, Dr. Reynolds, you're frequently featured in BuzzFeed and in Vogue and other publications. So why do you think it's important to get into those specific publications and get your um, research findings in something that is um, more accessible and what more of the general um, public will be reading rather than like a scientific journal? People are more likely to read BuzzFeed, especially with a catchy title. (laughs) Right, it's funny, you know, some of those BuzzFeed interviews will have a million viewers hits in a couple of days and so you really realize the impact that the media has on our society and on consumerism and I think it's really good as researchers to make sure our research is being applied in the places where it can have the most benefit so again in the household environment if if you know we're just doing research that gets published in professional journals or you know our own scientific journals then that's really not getting the message out where it can really help the public so public health is what we do and I think that the media can really be effective partners with us to promote public health messages and, and improve people's lives. And you just want to be, make sure when you're talking to them that we're giving the right message. Yeah. Like, like you said about the couch, couches can be dirty, but we need couches. So yeah. don't get rid of your couch, but yeah. understand how you use your couch and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. So BuzzFeed and all that stuff is a perfect way to get that out. Yeah. And they also present the findings in a very accessible way of like a list or something with more um, casual language. I think that's really important. But if you ever say anything in a media interview about not kissing your dog, you will get hate mail. (laughs) And it's okay if you're out there and you kiss your dog, you that's fine. But um, when I'm asked, you know, what's the best practice in terms of not coming in contact with germs, you know, kissing animals is one way you might pick up something you don't want. So yeah, (laughs) I I was personally a little mad at you when I read the article about the workout clothes and how long how you should immediately change out of your workout clothes and I was like, that's when I may ignore <laughs> but yeah no it is great to have the information out there and um, I'm sure you do get a lot of angry comments um, that is definitely part of the job but even those angry comments are good like conversation starters they are yeah like, they are to, yeah. to learn and like move forward with that because I'm kissing my dog so yeah. <laughs> I kissed my dog too if you want to know the truth yeah <laughs> one of the um, um, other important ones, I was actually, my brother-in-law is going to kill me for mentioning this on the podcast, but we got into an argument this morning about how often you should be washing your office coffee mug. Is that something that you were involved in? Yes, we yeah. did some of those studies. Those were from a long time ago. But yeah. So what's the answer for that? So, Jesse, if you're listening to this, I'm right, I think. <laughs> hey, Jesse, after every use, you need to wash that mug. Thank you. I just won a bet, so uh, I'm really happy about that. But the audience for this podcast is is um, public health professionals and um, people who may work in public health departments. And they a part of their job is also similar to the part of your job where it comes to communicating that research information in a way that's going to impact the most people. Um, so what challenges do you face when communicating your research? Um, I know we just mentioned the hate mail, but besides uh, th- that, what are some of the, those challenges and how do you mitigate those issues? 
So I do a lot of outreach with like K to 12. Oh, yes. And so when I was in high school, I don't even think we ever talked about bacteria. I didn't know anything. So <laughs> when I first went back, I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach them everything. And they knew so much. So I think that's one of the challenges is gauging what your audience already knows. Yes. So I know when I start talking to people, I, I typically start asking questions first. So I gauge their understanding and I can tailor my language yeah, that's a to great, something like that. Great point. Because, so, yeah kids nowadays oh my gosh they're so smart <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the internet they have the internet yeah. um so how do you also when you are dealing with something that's a little bit more sensational so we will be talking about the california water study that you've commented on how do you communicate um your knowledge without creating sort of a media panic so yeah. you mentioned that one of the positives of um, getting into publications such as BuzzFeed is having that wide reach, but sometimes media can also sensationalize public health issues. So how do you mitigate that issue of sens sen sensationalizing? Right, and issues? Jonathan and I talk about this a lot. We want to make people aware, not scared, yep. right? So um, you know, having an awareness about how you can improve your health is, is one thing, but changing your life to an area where you become such a germ-phobe that it's really not beneficial for you or anyone else, that's not what we're going after. And you know, in, even in best practices, we will still come into contact with germs. We will still get sick. We're not trying to sterilize the world. In fact, we know that at a certain age, exposure to germs is good for you. But the reality is we want people to know there are things they can do to reduce their risk of infection there are things they can do to you know, keep their homes and their, their lives healthier. And those are the messages we're trying to put out there. And there's some very simple lessons like washing your hands. You know, that is still a great public health intervention. And it's but sometimes you hear people say, you know, I'm, germs are good for me. I'm going to build my immunity. I'm not going to wash my hands. And that's the wrong kind of message to put out there. So we have to be careful about not sensationalize the issue, but giving people tools they can use to improve their, their health and their lifestyle. And like I say, some of it's super simple and will make a difference. Yeah, if you're on an airplane, maybe use hand sanitizer once. Or something, <laughs> something as small as that. Yeah, definitely. So um, I did mention the California water study that you've commented on. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and um, your findings there and what, how you were involved with that study with the Environmental Working Group? Sure. Well, I wasn't directly involved with the Environmental Working Group. Um, they've actually published quite a few studies recently in the media and in, in peer-reviewed journals talking about some exposures to contaminants like PFAS. These are fluorinated compounds that are in our water. Many of them come from plastics or fire retardants, things like that. And also arsenic, which is a naturally occurring compound. We have quite a bit of arsenic in our state of Arizona in our water supply. So it could be from industrial practices or also from just natural geological formations in the ground where arsenic can contaminate the water. So the Environmental Working Group has really brought to light some of these risks of exposure to these different compounds in our drinking water. And Jonathan and I have studied a lot over the years in drinking water exposures, both microbial and chemical. And the reality is some of the levels that we're finding are at levels at, are at levels that are unacceptable, that cause a risk of illness that's unacceptable. And we've defined unacceptable risk on a level with the EPA actually defines it as one in, a risk of one in 10,000 um, okay. infections per person per year. And then for carcinogens, like some of these chemicals we were talking about, the acceptable risk limit that we've set as a society in the U.S. is one in a million. So the levels that the Environmental Working Group was reporting and some of the levels that our research has shown puts us at a risk at, 
higher than what we're saying as a society is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And when the environmental working group or other researchers are looking at studies like this, um, do we look at each contaminant by itself or this is the first study that has kind of looked at groups of chemicals together? So why is it important to look at all of the chemicals um, as a group? It's important to look at chemicals yeah. as a group because that's how we get exposed to them. Consuming right? them. So, yeah. yeah. And we're not very good at doing that from a research perspective. You know, we might get a single compound or a mixture of a few compounds and expose rats, but and see what happens, you know, or do human studies in that in that way, epidemiological type studies. Um, but that's not really how we're exposed. We're exposed to hundreds of compounds from the second we get up in the morning, <laughs> from our beauty products, from the clothing, you know, that we wear, the textiles around us that have been treated with different types of chemical materials from the cosmetics we use, food we eat, on and on and on. So we're exposed to a lot of compounds, and we really don't know what those combined effects are doing to our health long term. No, and I remember you did a guest lecture in one of my courses um, in my master's program, and you mentioned the cosmetics, and you gave us a website. I think it was the Environmental Working Group website, Mm -hmm. um, where you can look up your cosmetics. And I was kind of shocked to see that a lot of the makeup that I was wearing is like banned in the UK. So why is that? Why are there different regulations between countries, and what do we get right in the U.S., and what do we get wrong? Yeah, so I, th- I think a lot of that is with the U.K., they practice the precautionary principle so that they're kind of, uh, before they let it out on the market, they want to make sure or, yeah, make sure it's safe, mm-hmm. where we do more risk assessment here in the U.S., so we typically tend to let it on the market until we find out that it's bad, and then we'll take it off. So there are just those different viewpoints yeah. between the countries for that. It's sort of like innocent <laughs> until proven guilty in yeah. the U.S. versus yeah. Yeah. the precautionary principle that they practice more in Europe is we assume that this is bad until somebody proves it's not. Yeah. So it's a very different approach. Yeah. And then As, some of these chemicals that they're just popping up because we have better uh, lab methods now. So we're okay. detecting all this stuff. So we could be exposed to a million more chemicals that we don't have methods to actually detect at those levels. Mm-hmm. So our lab methods are coming up are better. So. Yeah, as two professionals that work in this field, do you have um, an opinion on what's the better method to use, the innocent until proven guilty or (laughs) primary prevention? I think there should be a balance between the two. And, you know, I think we need to have more targeted research on the contaminants that are suspected as being high risk. And we don't always do that. But we have a lot of big industry influence in our country. And I think that that could be minimized so that the science leads instead of you know, consumer profits or something like that, you know. And I think it goes kind of back to what Kelly had said earlier, like our goal is to make people aware and not scared. Mm-hmm. So as long as we're getting that awareness out there, then the consumer can kind of make their own decision in some cases. Yeah, definitely. Um, going back to the California water study, were there certain groups in that study that were more impacted or more at a risk um, of being in a zone that's serviced by a high-risk water system? Definitely. That study revealed, and a lot of studies have before that one, that um, they're definitely vulnerable populations. So rural populations tend to be more at risk because they may be serviced by smaller utilities that don't have advanced treatment processes in place, like some of your larger cities will have. Or in rural populations, they may be supplying their own water supply. So their water supply may not even be under EPA regulation. So um, a lot of your private water supplies wouldn't fall under the Safe Drinking Water Act, for example. And so unless you take it upon yourself to test your own water supply, you may miss if there's even a contaminant presence. Mm -hmm. So we know that rural populations, smaller cities are more at risk for exposure to these types of contaminants. Mm -hmm. So how would you test your own water supply if that's something that you were interested in doing? Or is that way beyond the scope of an average person? 
No, I mean, there's there's definitely there's definitely groups that can help with that. The health department sometimes will provide okay. testing. Uh, there are commercial labs that can provide the testing, but it tends to not be inexpensive. <laughs> so it tends to be expensive. I can imagine. There's not a huge incentive to do it unless you're sure you have mm-hmm. a problem. And uh, many of these contaminants that we're concerned about, there's no taste. There's no odor to them. You think your water's great, and a lot of people have the perception, my water comes from the ground. It comes from the earth. It's it's clean. It's pristine. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly where some naturally occurring contaminants are. Yeah. I do have some general questions, but I think your stories are much more interesting. I don't know what else to ask. (laughs) I want to get into some of the stories just from your work. Anything that you would think would be interesting to talk about? So we were talking about some of the work we've done in the past, looking at sort of unlikely sources of outbreaks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And one study that I did in the past was looking at diapers, children's diapers in landfills. So we took a core out of a landfill and... I think they determined that where we were getting these cores was about 30 years old. The garbage was about 30 years old. And so we found diapers there, and we were unfolding the diapers, and the contents of the diaper was perfectly pristine. It hadn't degraded. It hadn't changed. Oh, my goodness. You know, it was a perfectly formed little stool in there. And so our study was really looking at if we could identify, isolate um, vaccine organisms because wow. at that time when that garbage was put in the landfill, some of our vaccines were live vaccines. So there still could be polio virus, for example, in that diaper. That's crazy. <laughs> and sure enough, we could we could isolate microorganisms from the stools. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really remember about that study is the smell. I've yeah. never oh smelled goodness. anything yeah. worse than a 30-year-old diaper in the landfill. Didn't you guys have to work at night? Oh, yeah, <laughs> because we, the rest of the lab hot. couldn't stand the smell. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we had to work after hours on this project because it smelled so bad. But sometimes you think what you put in a landfill is mm-hmm. is degrading things just don't degrade that rapidly and yeah. diapers certainly not and the other thing is there you know there are unintended consequences if there are pathogens in that diaper that could be something that comes back to haunt us at some point later. Yeah. And when Jonathan and I were talking about this story, he said, I have a diaper story, yeah. too. Really? So I'll let him tell yeah. his. Well, so. I just want to say first, that is dedication to public <laughs> health. And if you ever get any more hate mail, I will be telling people that that you've done that before. <laughs> like, like, my yes, exactly. But no, I want to hear this. Yeah, so this, this was an outbreak that happened in uh, Washington. It was at a car dealership. There was 16 employees. 12 of them got sick. Two of their family members got sick, and they later discovered that it was all from a baby in the diaper. Oh. The baby had diarrhea, and in the bathroom, the mom was just holding it above the trash can because it was spraying. Okay, now I'm horrified. Yeah. <laughs> and so the workers, they cleaned it up, but they cleaned it up with just water and paper towels. Oh. No disinfectant, and then they opened the door to let the other employees in, and pretty much everyone got sick. So it was a norovirus. So how outbreak. did you trace that? incident so were you calling people so that had th- been this, in the this was dealership from the literature for one of the classes that i teach yes. just one of the case studies that we do mm-hmm. but i mean the county health oh, department yeah, got they... involved they investigated the catering shop and they discovered okay it wasn't the catering shop and they were able to actually track down that woman and her baby because they were going to buy mm-hmm. the car so they were able to track it down and do some source tracking and they um, looked at all the norovirus that everyone in the shop was exposed to and they were identical so they matched so they did do some genetic testing and all the fun 
yeah, uh, tracking down. That those are definitely two very unlikely sources yeah. <laughs> of outbreaks <laughs> that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, speaking about uh, speaking of diapers, I know you also mentioned um, summertime and the pools. If mm-hmm. you want to talk about that a little bit, sure. So in the U.S., recreational waterborne illnesses is at an all-time high in the last decade. So for all the interventions we have and all the information we have about how to keep pool water safe and chlorinated we have a lot of outbreaks still occurring. So one of the things we discovered was that parents tend to think of pools as something to sort of wash your hands in. And so (laughs) they would change the diaper and wash their hands in the swimming pool because, hey, there's chlorine in there. It's going to kill any germs. But it's not really designed to work quite that way. And one of the frequent outbreaks that we we tend to see, we've had some in, in Arizona as well, is in those zero-depth pools. So just kind of like the water fountains that kids run through and play in and things. Parents at one point thought, you know, if I change the diaper, I can just rinse them off in this fountain. But what they don't (laughs) don't realize is that water's not going to the sewer. It's being recirculated for your enjoyment and entertainment. So the water was just getting recirculated. So whatever they thought they were rinsing off was coming right back into into play, let's say. So, you know, swimming pools are not a place to, to wash. In fact, you should be washing before you get in the pool so that whatever's on your body doesn't wash off of your body and contaminate other swimmers. Because we definitely, when we swim, we swallow water. Mm-hmm. And when we swim, our butts are in the water. And so you have this perfect fecal-oral transmission route. That yeah. And wasn't it something that every time you go swimming, it's like 125 mils or something like that of water that you swallow? Mm-hmm. So okay. it's yeah. a pretty nice amount. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. I can only imagine it's even worse than like, what I'm thinking of is the Lazy River at Legoland. <laughs> if you've ever seen that, if your kids have ever like gone to Legoland oh, yes. or anything, but there's like a lazy river that runs through it. There are just so many people just floating around in right. that. So. And pools yeah. shouldn't be cloudy. Yeah. And by the way, you shouldn't really smell chlorine at a pool. If you're smelling chlorine, that's an off-gas. It's actually chloramines, and that's a combination of organic matter like skin cells or urine, whatever is being deposited mm-hmm. in the pool, and that combines with the chlorine you get this off-gassing and that's the chlorine smell. So a well-balanced pool should test positive for a chlorine residual at about two parts per million, but it shouldn't smell like chlorine because that's the chlorine leaving the pool. Yeah, still when I go to a pool and I smell the chlorine, I'm still like, oh, this is perfect, <laughs> even though I know it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, we happen to the love the smell, smell of chlorine, don't we? Of cleaning products in general. No. I know you were talking about how... Um, one of your Saturday night hobbies is disinfecting your sink. <laughs> Did I just uh, um, embarrass you yeah. on this podcast? I, know, no. I probably would have said that at some point. So. I mean, it's like, mine too. I love a good disinfecting yeah. of the sinks. I think all of us in public health love that. In all the rest of my house, it can be dirty, but that sink. I, and, I, and I sit and watch it disinfect, and nothing happens. <laughs> I will just sit at a sink full of water for half an hour just watching. Could you talk about some of the misconceptions surrounding your work while we are talking about how, how scared I am now? Yeah. <laughs> For me, my big one is everyone thinks I look at a microscope all the time. Okay. I log maybe two minutes a year. <laughs> I, I grow this stuff, do genetics, or just do different types of assay, but I almost never, I don't even know where our microscope is right now that, <laughs> that's working. So, yeah. And I know Kelly has a good one. That, yeah, well, my friends and family say to me all the time, oh, you know, you work at the U of A, and you're a teacher, and now it's summertime, so you have summer off, right? You know? <laughs> no. So in our jobs at U of A, we we participated a lot in teaching, and we love teaching and working with the next generation of public health researchers. But we also love working with the community, and those are service projects, and you know, working with the media, the community, doing things like this podcast. So that kind of service outreach is a real passion of both mine and Jonathan's as well. 
Um, but we also do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And so in the summertime, we have our labs are fully functioning, really busy. Graduate students are all here working all through the summer and publishing papers and writing grants. So it's a really active program, and we never take summers off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah summers are the busiest time because, like, I mean, for me, I teach two classes in the summer, and then with all the research, we also host a lot of interns mm -hmm. through SRAC. So I know right now we have two. Nice. So and that takes up a lot of time, and then all the outreach and summer yeah. camp. Jonathan yeah. does a summer camp. Oh, that's with K through twelve. Uh, yeah, it's uh, with the Healthy to Be Me camp here. Oh so yes, yes, one yes. Of the speakers yeah. at uh, all those. I had a friend that did her internship, Hannah Zarin, again with with the Healthy to Be Me um, program. Um, so, what research projects are you working on right now? So, mm -hmm. one of them is um, it's a study we're looking at restaurants. So, we're looking at the different hand soaps that they're using. Okay. So, we're going from regular hand soaps. So, we're looking at the bacteria that's on hands and surfaces, and then they're gonna switch to an antimicrobial hand soap, and we're gonna see how that has an effect. Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna switch them back to their regular one and see just what happens. Yeah, that's really so, interesting. And then we've got some other ones looking yeah. at disinfectants, different uh, new novel disinfectants that could be used in the, just the home industry or as well as the ag industry and stuff like that, so. Yeah, is the College of Agriculture involved in ESRAC at all? We do yep. have collaborators from the College of Agriculture, so we work across campus, a number of different departments and colleges across campus, and the Department of Mathematics, and mm -hmm. the College of Medicine, College of Nursing, so we have a lot of people involved in the initiatives around ESRAC. Yeah, that's great. Um, so now probably the hardest question of the day, what are some of the contentious issues in the upcoming decade that we need to be focusing on as public health professionals, um, especially in the realm of both of your research? Yeah, I think we need to be careful not to get too complacent in our environment. There's a lot of things happening in the environment that are beneficial to our health, but there's a lot of things happening that are more detrimental. So one of the things I mentioned earlier, one of my passions is healthcare-acquired infections. There's about 100,000 of those a year that occur in the U.S., and a lot of deaths occur from healthcare-acquired infections, and that's something that is preventable. These are infections that are spread. People come into the hospital to be treated for something else and come out with an infection like MRSA or Legionella. So I think that's something we really need to stay focused on because there are effective interventions to prevent those. Um, and we need to realize that we can do better with our water quality and our food quality. And these are things that I think we need to remain diligent at addressing. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of see it as like shifting burdens. So I mean, climate change, organisms are going to move to different areas. They're going to leave certain areas. And then even just going back to like the healthcare acquired. So we have all this technology and these brand new disinfectants that are awesome to use, but who's gonna be the one using them? So are we mm -hmm. shifting the burden onto more of the EVS people, so suddenly they're more overworked? Mm -hmm. So are we gonna miss some certain areas? So I think it's kind of just looking at the picture as a whole. Yeah, that's like really difficult to try to get a whole grasp on something when an issue is that as big as healthcare-acquired infections. Do either of you do any work with climate change at all? Is that part of your research? Not, not, really. not directly, no. but obviously our work in agriculture and in mm -hmm. any kind of field studies are impacted by, by climate change. Um, so when you have a change in climate, you have different organisms that will grow in water supplies. So Negleria is one organism we've studied in the past. Oh, yeah. And we have a Negleria project actually right now that's just starting, but looking at how we can remove Negleria from water supplies. Negleria is a free-living amoeba. Mm -hmm. It's also called the brain-eating amoeba. Yeah. yeah, there was a case recently in Washington. Yes, yeah. and we've had several in Arizona from a drinking water supply, but essentially when you store water in holding tanks, Legionella, or sorry, um, Negleria, yeah. Legionella too, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can grow and um, infect more people or come into contact with more people. So that's 
solely a function of, and well, in part a function of climate change, because as water temperatures increase, algae increases, nigleria eats algae, and then you get more nigleria. So it's a cycle that kind of continues to work together and against us, really. And typically it's normally in like the south of the United States and stuff like that, but they have found it up in Michigan and stuff like that, so we're still understanding where it's going and... Well, since this is um, for public health professionals that are all in different realms, how did you discover that this was a particular career path that interests you? It was a complete accident for me. <laughs> I was going to really? school to be a pharmacist. Oh, wow. And I worked at Target at the same time. And my friend that worked at Target, her mom was graduating from the U of A. And I went to her graduation party, and she knew I was a science major. And she was a lab manager and needed to hire someone. And she's like, you want to work for me? And I still work with that lab to this day. Wow. I started there, changed my major to microbiology because I fell in love with it. But then I was missing one other aspect. I was missing the environment aspect. Mm-hmm. So then got my master's in environmental science. And then I was started working with Kelly. And that's when I realized I was missing the public aspect, the people, the human interaction. So that's kind of what evolved and how I got here. Got here. That's cool. So thank you, Target. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And I stumbled into this career as well. And when I was in high school, this was back in the 80s, all I really knew if you were good in math and science, was you should be a doctor. And so I was in the pre-med track here at the U of A as an undergrad, thinking I was going to go to med school. And then I discovered microbiology. And I thought, this is a really interesting field. And then I discovered the research aspect of the field. And I thought, this is, it just really resonated with me. It's really what I saw myself doing. And, you know, I just want to say to a number of people out there, and, you know, kids in particular who are looking for a career path, there's so much more to math and science than just the traditional medical field. Yeah, you know, really so well said. keep an open mind and explore all of these different aspects in public health, in research, in community service. There's so much out there. Yeah, and don't think of research just as bench top. Yeah. That's the one mm-hmm. thing that I, I get bored quite easy if I'm just in the lab. I love how we're out there in the public. We're going out to Yuma, we're in the fields, we're going to the hospital. So you're not just sitting at a bench top. So yeah. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Dr. Sexton and Dr. Reynolds. I feel like you're, you are a celebrity since you are always in the media, so I'm glad we got the chance to be able to sit down with you. Anything else before we wrap up? No, just thanks for having no, us. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for being here. If you are looking to obtain continuing education credits for listening to this podcast, please head to moodle.publichealth.arizona.edu and click on the Keeping Up with Public Health tab in the WRPHTC section and take the post-evaluation survey for this episode. This podcast is supported by the Western Region Public Health Training Center. You can find more of our work at www.wrphtc.arizona.edu. You can also find us on Twitter at WRPHTC. A special thank you to Eric Healy for editing and producing the show in addition to creating the music for each episode.